0: Do you love sweet food? Or do you even feel like you could be addicted to sugar? Most of us eat far more than the recommended intake of sugar each day. And so today we take a closer look at the programming that we want to do when it comes to wanting more and more of the sweet stuff. Hi, I'm Leanne Ward. And I'm Susie Burrell. And every week, we bring you The Nutrition Couch, the bi-weekly podcast that keeps you up to date on everything that you need to know in the world of nutrition. As well as all things sugar addictions today, we share our top fast food hacks to choose meals that are under 300 calories if you're forced to pick up some fast food on the run. And our listener question is all about plant-based coconut yogurts. So Susie, to kick us up today, it's all things sugar. Now, the Australian recommendations are no more than 25 grams of added sugar each day. And let's be honest, it sounds like a lot, but in reality, it's actually not. When you think about it, a serving size of, say, for example, just a plain Cadbury milk dairy chocolate, a 50 grams serving size, one of those like small bars that a lot of people pick up at the checkouts as they're doing their grocery shopping, as they're filling up their petrol in the car, they'll pick one up at the counter. That is 28 grams of sugar. That's already our entire daily added sugar intake for the day. If you are having a 600 mil bottle of regular Coke, that is 64 grams of sugar each day. If you're having a regular something like you know, Gatorade or Powerade, one of those energy drinks, that still has a ton of sugar in it as well. So I think that we forget... Where a lot of the sugar is coming from. There's a lot of added sugar in cereals. There's a lot of added sugar in things like juices and smoothies. And of course, there's a lot of added sugar if we're looking at biscuits and pastries and that sort of thing as well. So there's a naturally occurring sugar through things like fruit and our dairy products have naturally occurring sugar and lactose in them as well. So we're not too concerned about that because they're more of our whole food products. We're really talking about that added sugar each day. And we do get a lot of clients that say to us, Susie, I'm addicted to sugar. I'm absolutely addicted. I can't stop it. And indeed, there's not really a whole lot of research around this addiction to sugar. But what we do know is that when we do consume sweet things or food that tastes good, it lights up those areas in our brain that essentially is like our pleasure center. So we do know, and myself included, you included, Susie, and our clients as well, the more sugar we have, the more sugar we tend to want. So you've had a few good experiences within your own clinical practices of kind of holding off clients till later in the day because what we both find is that if you have sugar early on, say for Example, you have a couple of biscuits with your coffee in the morning, you're more likely to want more and more of that sugar throughout the day, aren't you?
1: I think what we know from the science is that certainly there's a programming effect over time. But I will often have clients who describe themselves as being addicted to sugar and sweet foods. And when I look at their diaries or their diet history, certainly they ride off sweet food all day. And that's my concern. And I think what we will find genetically. Is that some people are more sensitive to it than others. And specifically, one of the big drivers is if you have a degree of insulin resistance, it means that your natural glucose cycle, because of course, sugar breaks down to give glucose. When you have concentrated amounts of that in a person who is insulin sensitive or doesn't have insulin resistance or is in a weight stable situation, Whenever they eat carbohydrate or sweet food, they will have insulin response to match it and their glucose levels will return to normal quite quickly. Whereas in someone who has glucose regulation issues, that process takes longer and that tends to drive that response and those cravings. So if I've got a client who tolerates sweet food quite well, so for example, they might have fruit and cereal for breakfast and then have something sweet after their lunch, maybe fruit yogurt or fruit again, and then they prefer sweeter snacks so they might have a fruit-based snack bar, muesli bar, fruit to snack on, and they don't have an issue with their weight and they can control it and they're not going at night and binging dessert and biscuits and other sweet food, I don't have a problem necessarily with leaving them on that trajectory, you know, because particularly if they're active people and need the calories. But that's generally not what I see. Generally what I see is the more sweet food people have, the more they want, and it drives that incessant need for food right through the day. So you might start even with, say, a sweet spread jam, peanut butter, on toast in the morning or something like banana bread or something at a cafe or even white bread because that is quite sweet even if it's not added sugar. Or they might have milk coffee, so, say, oat latte or add sugar to their tea or coffee. And then that's enough in my experience to drive that desire. So if you finish your lunch, for example, and are constantly looking for that sweet hit, it's suggestive that your body's not overly good at regulating your sugar intake. And I find myself anecdotally that if you keep off it during the day, you're much more in control of it. So I think everyone's different. It's not a technical addiction. It's not like, you know, in the case of illicit drugs or alcohol that, you know, your body will sort of respond as aggressively. But there's certainly a programming effect in the brain that the more you have, the more you want, which shows how people who don't need a lot are happy with a piece of fruit, whereas some people, you know, can down a whole packet of chocolate biscuits and not even tip the side. So I think the thing with sweet food, if you know you're sensitive to it, my suggestion is just to wean off slowly. There's a really strong programming effect. So, for example, if you always add sugar to your tea or coffee and you know it's not the best habit just rather than go cold turkey and put yourself under that pressure, you're better just to have three quarters of a teaspoon and then half a teaspoon and over time reduce it. And in general, I find most of my clients feel so much more in control of it when they do it that way rather than that all or nothing approach where they're like, I'm not having any, I'm not having any, then I'm binging it. So, yeah, the, the recommendation from the World Health Organization is for less than 25 grams a day of added sugars. I think even a bigger concern is our kids, Because kids are having so much discretionary food. Like I think it's something obscene. Like I want to say 40% of calories in kids under five are coming from discretionary foods because we reward kids with so much sweet food. You only have to go to the park or the playground to see the parents giving things like tiny teddy biscuits, fruits, straps, dried fruit. Then go to the coffee shop and they have like the baby Chino with sprinkles on top or they'll have the... The marshmallows. um, (laughs) Yeah, the marshmallows or the kids' cupcakes. Like I was looking in Woolies the other day, they had like cookies for kids and cupcakes for kids. Like some of them had like 20, 30 grams of sugar. Like I went to get some for the boys and I just couldn't do it. I was like, oh, my God, I can't give the kids that. So I think as parents, you know, as adults on one hand, if you're sensitive, it it helps you keep in control of your food to minimise sweet intake. But for us parents, I think we've got to be so careful because we're priming them to want more of that sweet food by offering it as treats and rewards right through the day. So I think just being mindful of all the the places that it, it slips in and knowing that you're probably going to get more than enough from treats or birthday cake and things like that without adding it back in all the time as well right through the day absolutely and even just
0: reading your food labels like you were doing at the supermarket because sometimes you pick something up and you think oh mini cupcake that's fine for the kids and then you read the nutrition label like you did and it's quite shocking to actually see and some products are actually a lot better than other products as well so it's not about the front of packet marketing where you pick something up and it says low sugar or a better option or just for the kids we really have to spend that extra couple of minutes and really try to read and decipher the food labels out there because it is just a minefield in trying to feed ourselves and our children some healthier options these days. But really what I like to do for me are with muffins and that sort of thing, because I don't have time, like the majority of people listening to the podcast to be baking even every week, let alone every day. So I make big batches of mini muffins. I don't put any sugar in them at all. Even when a recipe says like a cup of sugar, say in a banana muffin or some, you know, apple, whatever flavored muffins, I don't put any sugar and I just use the natural sugar within the fruit. And then sometimes I might put a little bit of like coconut or something like that. That in there as well, so it's naturally added sugar, but I don't think it needs the additional sugar. And then I just batch freeze them and then warm them up in the microwave or leave them out overnight, and they're kind of ready to go the next day for her lunchbox. So really doing that kind of smart baking if your kids do like those sorts of things for their lunchboxes. But as adults, I'll just give one final little hack, Susie. I was talking to some of my clients this week about it, and I put up an Instagram reel a couple of must have been last week or something um, around having sweets, and I said basically you don't have to give up chocolate, you don't have to give up sweets but you have to be very mindful that you're not having it on an empty stomach like you said initially with our blood sugar levels, they tend to shoot up if all we're doing is eating pure sugar or a, a small sugary food, like a bit of chocolate or a handful of lollies or a couple of mentos or something. So what we want to do is try to prime our body first with a little bit of protein or a little bit of fat to help to stabilize that blood sugar level kind of swoop. So what I like to do is give my clients one of those little like baby bell cheeses. They have about five or six grams of protein in there, their little protein ones, or a small handful of nuts, or even just one or two tablespoons of good quality Greek yogurt. And then they can have a little bit of sugar, they can have a little bit of the treat that they're looking for. And that just helps to sort of stabilize those blood sugar levels a little bit more so they're not constantly going back for more and more. So it's really about combining it within a balanced meal or having a balanced meal and then having a little bit of a treat afterwards, but not having the treat hours after the meal. So the treat is all that you're having and your blood sugar levels tend to do quite a large spike more so than if you were to combine it with a meal. So really looking at kind of the quality of the snack that you're choosing overall and not just having the sugar by itself trying to pair it with a little bit of protein or fat to prevent that sugar spike?
1: I think that the latest sort of science on food sequencing is also quite powerful in this context. So if you know you're someone who has that terrible craving after a meal, there's reasonably strong evidence to show that glucose regulation is significantly better if you eat your macros in a certain order. So for example, always starting with the veggie or salad bulk of the meal followed by the protein and then the carbohydrates. So in a breakfast example, if you were having, say, a slice of protein toast with some cottage cheese or ricotta and banana, you would then suggest starting with the protein toast and the cottage cheese and follow the banana. Or if you're having eggs, start with the veggies, tomato, spinach, then the eggs and then the bread at the end. And that is very powerful and it's often something because we're not overly mindful when we're eating, people shove food in. If you can take that time to eat in order, um, even particularly your evening meal, that will go a long way. I think um, if you're someone prone to that sugar craving, you want to neutralise your mouth. So things like chewing on gum, soda-type water or kombucha, that kind of very different taste sensation in the mouth is quite powerful. And we would, I would always say the biggest predictor of consumption is, is having availability. So if you sit at your desk and have biscuits there or a chocolate bar, you'll eat it. So you've got to make it more difficult to get it because, you know, people take it in their bag or they're at work and then it just slips in. So I think there's a certain degree of psychological regulation, structural stuff that you can do with your food, but also then there's just physical limitation to try and break the back of it. And certainly clients after starting with me and likely you, Leanne, Once they've had a week or two of a much higher protein diet, they will always talk about the reduction in sugar cravings and how much more satisfied they feel, which just goes to show there is a programming effect and the baseline nutrition is really, really important. And So rather than focusing on avoiding the sweet stuff, it's about building that baseline and then having a strategy for managing cravings. So I think it's worth a discussion because certainly I have a lot of clients who would describe themselves as addicted to sweet food Absolutely,
0: and like I think there's a book about how the French are so slim, but they still enjoy their wine, they still enjoy their cheese, they still enjoy their desserts. And when you look at when you go to France, when you go to even places like Italy, they often start with a salad. Like there's always some sort of salad on the table, or even if it's like in your if you're in the middle of Italy and it's like a bit of cheese and a bit of tomatoes with a bit of balsamic. So maybe try to make that a regular part of your eating routine because, like Susie said, there's actually quite powerful research coming out around the the different combinations of food and how you eat them. And it really sounds weird for me to be eating veggies and then eggs and then toast, or if I was to have my Greek yogurt first and then my, you know, berries or something, and then my granola afterwards, like it doesn't make sense in my head, but it is very strong research. If you do have blood sugar regulation issues to actually think about eating your vegetables first, followed by your protein and leaving the carbohydrate portion till last. And if you look at some of the countries around the world that generally have really healthy people and that are able to control their weight a lot better than the majority of Australians or Americans, they often start with a big salad. You know, they don't hoe into the big bowl of white rice followed by, you know, the chicken and then a tiny bit of veggies. They'll often start with a really large plate of salad or veggies as a starter. Then they'll go into the protein and then they finish off with a little bit of wine and a little bit of dessert. They don't do it in the opposite way. And these countries typically minimize a lot of snacking as well. Generally, when they have a little bit of a treat, it is paired with a meal to again prevent that big blood sugar spike. That's all I was really going to add there. We can take a lot from our international friends basically by the way that they tend to eat their meals and the timing of that as well.
1: Yes, very true. All right, well, a slightly different slant but really not that different. In the last week or so, there's been quite a few headlines on major news outlets about what a nutritionist would choose at McDonald's. And when one of my editors asked me to write a piece on this, I knew that it would go gangbusters and it's you sort of in a conundrum because on one hand, you want to be promoting good nutrition and certainly any kind of fast food is not promoting good nutrition. But on the other, that's what people want to click on. So it's a constant balance in the media of giving people what they want versus what they need. But I did write it up. And um, I thought it might be useful to share because whether you want to or not, the truth of the matter is that we will find ourselves, especially coming into holiday time, at remote in remote areas, traveling, and literally the only thing that you can get is fast food. Now, sure, I'll have discussions with clients, take it with you, pack your food. But you know, even I'm, when I'm on a road trip with the kids, we will also stop at McDonald's. And one of the reasons I believe people do it, and I can attest to this myself with small children, is it's cheap you know, if you go to some cafes and outlets, you know, you're paying $50, 60 $80 for a small meal. It's just ridiculous. Whereas even though the prices at fast food chains, including McDonald's are nowhere near as low as they once were, you can certainly come away with a meal for a child for less than $5, which is pretty unheard of. Admittedly, if you add the salad, it takes it up to almost 10. But anyway, so I thought today what I would go through is not, and this is by no way an endorsement of fast food. I would much prefer my clients to always take their food with them, I try and avoid it. I find it's always underwhelming a lot of this food, but I thought I would share some of the best choices under about 300 calories with a few caveats because it's not all it's cracked up to be. And certainly if you're interested more in this, we've got a whole guide on takeaway food at thenutritioncouch.com where we rate our favorite choices at each fast food outlet. But I'll just go through a few of them. So looking at the Macca's menu, I think that the salads there are massively overrated. If you've ever ordered one, they're not cheap. And the volume of salad is usually pretty low and it's usually pretty gross Quality, So even though that would be the healthiest option, I, my personal preference, you can get, if you specifically order the whole meal grilled chicken snack wrap, it comes in just over 200 calories, almost 14 grams of protein. If you get it without mayo, it lowers it even further. Now, it's really small. It won't fill you up. You probably need to. But I would certainly prefer a client to have one or two of those with, say, a diet soft drink or a coffee from McCafe than a fast food meal with the fries. So anything generally that you can avoid eating the fries is the take-home message. So certainly that's one of my better options there. Hungry Jack's is pretty light on the end. They really have got very poor information on their site and certainly not very many good choices. Probably my best option there is the plain cheeseburger, which comes in at just 309 calories and 14 grams of fat, a massive 900 milligrams of sodium. But it wouldn't be my first choice if I had to choose between Hungry Jack's and Macca's, I'd be going Macca's all the way. KFC is very ordinary as well. The best one I could find at 254 calories is their original supercharged slider. It's like a little taco. It's got very little salad, but fried chicken. Again, certainly not my go to, but that would be my best option there. And definitely out of all the chains, Leanne, if you find a Subway, you are in good hands. Subway sandwiches, particularly the low fat six inch, all come in less than 300 calories. You get some salad, you get some protein. And by far and away, if you're looking at, and I would say that comes into sort of fast food that may be available, by far and away, this is the best option when it comes. And I'll just mention, and I've put, I could tell you all the different ones, but basically turkey and chicken pieces are quite low, but all of them are pretty good. And then you might also be interested to know that at Guzman and Gomez, which is quite a a large chain when you look at how um, popular different ones are and how many outlets are available, Most of the burritos and tacos are hugely high in fat and calories, like I'm talking a 1,000 calories per meal. But they do have a couple of options. The grilled chicken salad comes in at just over 300 calories and if you can ditch the dressing, it's lighter again. And their crispy chicken tenders again come in at less than 300 calories, but in that instance I'd be going for the salad. So it's not great if I'm choosing something. I tend to go for sort of the chicken strips and some sort of salad but there's a few smidgens and I certainly am, am a big fan of Subway when I'm traveling and try and find those in regional towns before I'd go to fast food if I can.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the problem is you might be able to find something that say three, 400 calories and you think, oh great, that's a light option. I do not find that those foods fill me up. And my client like you has smaller children, you know, six, eight years old. And she was saying to me, look, I know it's not ideal, but I'm going to have to go to Macca's like after our sports training, whatever, this is kind of the only thing around. She lives a bit regionally as well. And I said, all right, no, no, Rose, we'll find a good option for you. And we found something that matched from a calorie perspective, like a burger. And an hour later, she's like, oh my goodness, I'm so hungry. So the problem with these foods are, is they don't tend to fill you up. The calorie load's super high, but they don't fill you up. And hand on my heart, I would say in the last 10 years, I've been to McDonald's or Hungry Jack's twice, I reckon. And both times are after a wedding, it was probably about 1am in the morning and I had far too much to drink and my decision-making c- capabilities were not very strong. But I don't eat there on purpose because I do not find those foods filling at all. If they were delicious and filling and I could find a lower calorie option, sure, I might enjoy it as a treat very occasionally. But if I want a burger, I'll hands down go somewhere like grilled where I do find it you know, very filling. But my best options when I'm traveling like you are absolutely Subway. I love both the subs. Also, the wraps can be quite good and the salad options there. Are great as well. I love a good Soul Origin salad or wrap or a sumo salad as well. And even places like Fishbowl as well have, you know, quite good options and some poke bowls. But there's just not a lot when it comes to those generic kind of fast food, you know, chains like the Maccas, the Hungry Jacks, the KFC. So what I do find is I just kind of get my clients to plan in advance or if it's kind of like a one-off, like you, I just kind of say no sides, no soft drink, no chips, just stick to either a burger or some sort of wrap or something. Um, Red Rooster is probably one we didn't go through. There are a couple of better options at Red Rooster. You can get some of the chicken, which is a bit leaner, and they can add a little bit of extra veg on the side, like a little bit of peas or corn or some gravy and mash or something, which can tend to fill you up a little bit more. So Red Rooster, out of my pick of those big four, Hungry Jacks, Maccas, KFC or Red Rooster, I think hands down. Red Rooster would generally be my pick if clients kind of had a choice between that.
1: I think Red Rooster is an interesting one took because to try and pull the nutritionals off their websites are really difficult. So in theory, I don't disagree, but trying to track down those numbers, I found almost impossible. Most of the stuff there was meal deals. So they do have peas and stuff. But yeah, if you can find chicken and salad, like if you're at Woolies and can pick up a tin of tuna or salmon and a barbecue chicken with salad, that's certainly a much better option than most of them. But yeah, worst case, if you had a chicken snack wrap and a coffee or a diet soft drink from Macca's wouldn't be the end of the world, but it wouldn't fill you that much. So take some veggie snacks at least with you if you're on a road trip. Yeah, Absolutely. All right, and then to finish off today, Leanne, we had a listener question pop up on our Instagram and we'd love to get those. So certainly if you're interested in knowing anything specific, pop those through. We do go through them regularly. And it was all about coconut yogurt. And I know it's a really popular choice. And the question was, was it a healthier option compared to the plant-based yogurts? And I wanted to talk about it because for me, coconut yogurt masquerades as a healthy product when really there's no protein packed full of saturated fat and no calcium. So it's a hard no for me on coconut yogurt. I would much prefer soy or even the oat-based yogurts, but certainly I don't count coconut yogurt as a yogurt at all. It's definitely a dessert and definitely a heavy one. So it's a big thumbs down for me in general. It's not a healthy food.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. It's a hard no for me. If I have plant-based clients, generally if I have clients that are eating
1: coconut yogurt, it's not because
0: their preference is plant-based. They're just doing it because they think it's healthy and for whatever reason they think that dairy is bad or inflammatory or will gain weight a lot. So they've kind of swapped into this coconut yogurt because they think or they've been marketed to that it's a better choice. And like you, I'm a hard no. It's very high in calories, very high in saturated fat, minimal protein, so it doesn't really fill you up. And I don't think I've seen a brand on the market that's fortified with calcium. So to me, it's not yogurt at all. I like that you called it a dessert. That's quite funny. For me, you know, the preference would be something like a soy yogurt, but if I'm being honest, they don't taste very nice. And that's a biggest struggle I have with my vegan clients are they don't taste good, the soy yogurts. And I, I agree. I've tried a lot of them in the market. They're not very good. There was a couple of that we reviewed very early on in our podcast days, probably a good year or two ago. And sadly, they've gone off the market as well. So what has tended to stuck around is the better options in terms of plant-based yogurt. Some were based on a bit of oat. They were the better options because they had a little bit more protein in there. They were fortified. I can't remember that brand off the top of my head, Susie. It was green. Anyway, that's gone off the market anyway now. And I think coconut yogurt has just survived because it is quite delicious, because it is quite high in fat. And so I would be using it very, very sparingly, but I wouldn't be dumping it on my breakfast if I was following a plant-based lifestyle because I thought that it had more protein or it was adding any nutritional benefit to my food. I don't really see that there's any nutritional benefit for consuming something like coconut yogurt. Absolutely something like good quality Greek yogurt, but definitely not coconut yogurt. I would just be using it a little in my food if I needed to but not adding it in for any sort of positive nutritional benefits.
1: True. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of The Nutrition Couch for another Sunday. Please keep telling your friends about us so we can continue to grow. And check out our website, thenutritioncouch.com, and you will find that takeaway guide I spoke about there, as well as our recent webinars, Why Wait and Hack Your Hormones. Have a great week. Catch you guys next week.